Truly, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Please have a seat. This is um, not actually a comment about ascension. In fact, one of the joys of serving here is the experience of God that so many people, including me, discover in ordinary and extraordinary ways. It may be a presence that wells up as we sit in silence in the church, either alone or with others. It may be palpable in singing a familiar hymn, listening to the organ, or hearing the uninhibited voice of a child who knows they belong here. Perhaps God meets you when you come to receive the bread and wine, or as you pray for someone you care deeply about. I'm sure for many of us, God shows up as the light falls across the altar at the most mysteriously right moment in the liturgy, Sunday after Sunday or when we meet a stranger, or remember and feel the prayers of generations before us in this place. Surely, God's presence in this place is deeply sustaining, but also often surprising. Truly, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This quote is, of course, from the famous story of Jacob's Ladder that we heard earlier this morning. Jacob. We've been hearing about him for several weeks now. What a problematic character he is. He's Isaac's second son, though just barely. He comes into the world holding onto the heel of his twin brother Esau. In fact, his name literally means the heel thief. He takes by the heel, or he supplants. Last week, we learned that Jacob wanted his brother's birthright, the blessing that belonged to Esau as the oldest son. Jacob is his mother Rebekah's favorite, while Esau is favored by his father. When Esau comes in from hunting and is famished, he finds Jacob making a stew, and he begs him, give me something to eat. Jacob plays with his brother and bribes him, refuses to feed him unless he will give him his birthright. Esau is starving, so he agrees. The old translations say he sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. With some further help from Rebekah, Jacob tricks Isaac, who is almost blind by this time. He dresses up in the clothes made of the kind of skins that Esau, who is a hunter, usually wears, so he will both smell and feel like his brother. And so he receives his father's blessing, which once given is irrevocable. Esau learns of his brother's trickery and cries disconsolately to Isaac, Have you only one blessing? Bless me too! But it seems there is nothing left for Esau. Now in a murderous rage, Esau plans to kill Jacob, but Rebekah plots to save him and sends him away to find a wife among her relatives in Haran, several days' journey away. And this is where we meet Jacob on his journey. 
He's not on retreat or some kind of vision quest in the wilderness. He's not looking for the divine. Rather, he's having to get out of town in a hurry. He's on the run from Esau, spending the night in a nameless, lonely place, a place in between where he has been and where he is going. He's a man who no longer belongs anywhere. So when night comes, he lies on the ground with a stone for a pillow and sleeps. And he has this dream. He sees a ladder rising up from the earth and the top of it reaches to heaven. And angels, who are God's messengers, are moving up and down on it. And God comes and stands right next to Jacob and blesses him with a greater, wilder blessing than the one he has recently stolen, a blessing that links him with his ancestors and with the whole earth. I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, says the deity. I will give you, you who have no place, and your offspring, this land you lie on, and your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and spread to all four directions. This is reminiscent of the blessing God gave Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that his descendants would be as many as the stars of the sky. But here the image is, well, earthy. As writer Reagan Sutterfield says, Jacob is promised a lineage of common dirt, widespread as the loose topsoil that spreads over the world in every direction and sustains life on earth. What's more, and here's an essential, remarkable part, God says that all the families of the earth will be blessed because of Jacob and his offspring. The blessing is not for Jacob's private possession. It's something to flow through to bless the earth and the world. The Holy One says, I will be with you. I will keep you and bring you home. I will not leave you. Thus, Jacob, the thief of his brother's birthright blessing, is now blessed entirely by lavish and prodigal grace. By grace, he will be a blessing beyond imagining. The one with no place recognizes that he's in a sacred place, and he names it Bethel, the house of God. Filled with awe, he says, this is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Jacob anoints his stone pillow with oil and sets it up as a pillar in a ceremony of honor and acknowledgement, marking the divine presence. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The dream, the divine dream, touches down in the wilderness. Heaven and earth are surprisingly connected and God comes to this particular place and stands next to Jacob and promises to be with him. Surely God is with this trickster, Jacob, but who would have expected it? He's such an improbable choice, and for that very reason, an important figure in the story of our faith. But Jacob's journey has only just begun. After many years, two wives and 13 children, he will have another experience with blessing, 
On the night before he is finally to meet Esau again and is afraid for his life, at the bank of the Jabbok River, Jacob will wrestle with an unknown and holy adversary until the break of dawn. And then as day breaks, he will say to this one with whom he wrestles, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the blessing he receives then is personal and costly and changes him in his very body. He will leave with his thigh out of joint and limp for the rest of his life. And he will be given a new name, Israel, the one who strives with God. This is, of course, a name for the community of Jacob's offspring and for God's people through whom a blessing is offered to the world. Centuries later, Jesus tells a story about the surprising way that God is present in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Someone sowed good seed, an enemy sowed weeds among the wheat, and they both grew together. The farm workers are horrified, and they want to uproot the weeds at once. The word for weed here is darnel, a specific and pernicious plant that looks exactly like wheat at the early stages of its growth. But the owner of the field says no. No, let them grow together until the harvest so that the wheat is not damaged with the weeds. In the case of wheat and darnel, as Jesus' hearers would know, the roots themselves intertwine. Really? The kingdom of heaven, the mysterious reign and presence of God, which is the primary focus of Jesus' teaching, is ambiguous like this? This is so important for us, isn't it? We live in a confusing, polarized, morally uncertain, and exhausting world. I don't know about you, but I want to fix things. I want to root out evil. And we think we know what's right and who all the bad ones are. This parable is found only in Matthew, so apparently it was important for his community also. Scholars think he wrote to a church that included both Jews and Gentiles, culturally different, having to live with disagreements and strongly held conflicting positions and maybe conflicting behaviors, too. Some of what went on was undoubtedly heated, divisive, even destructive. And perhaps sometimes folks simply did not know what was right or what in the world God was up to. The parable focuses on how Matthew's community and we are to respond to evil and ambiguity. It doesn't answer why they exist in our midst. They simply do. To be clear, there are other moments in the gospel when Jesus speaks prophetically, particularly against the evil done by people with power. He causes division. He calls his disciples to take risks for justice and defend the most vulnerable in the community, sometimes to set very clear boundaries. This parable does not say we are never to challenge injustice or call out evil. It does call for discernment, and when and how will be tricky.
When we live in community, be it the community of our family, our parish, the broader church, or the larger world, we inevitably encounter both wrongdoing, yes we do, and strange doing. It's so tempting to write people off and react to every outrage, to retaliate preemptively in righteous anger until we're in a constant state of uproar. Instead, says the parable, sometimes we need to leave the judgment to God and let life ripen. In her reflection on this this parable, Barbara Brown Taylor says, what the boss seems to know is that the best and only real solution to the problem of evil is to bear good fruit. Our job in a mixed field is not to give ourselves to the enemy by devoting all our energy to the destruction of the weeds. Hear that again. It's a temptation to give ourselves to the enemy by devoting all our energy to the destruction of the weeds. But she goes on, rather we are to mind our business, so to speak, and our business is the reconciliation of the world through the practice of unshielded love. If we give ourselves to that, God will take care of the rest. This is also true for our personal internal community, the diverse and often conflicting parts of our own souls. I'm reminded what Carl Jung said about the shadow, how often the hidden, neglected, or despised parts of our inner selves carry something essential for our wholeness, and also how often our shames and faults and struggles are the flip sides or even the midwives of some of our great gifts. We need to learn how to tolerate ambiguity both within and without to grow to full maturity. Indeed, sometimes we can say about our own communities and our own unlikely, conflicted lives, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. So what do we take from these lessons this morning? First, they call us to openness and awe to become aware of the unexpected presence of God, the thin places where earth and heaven are close, the ordinary and extraordinary mingle. The holy may suddenly erupt in moments of sharp conflict, when we feel we've reached the end of our rope, or in the in-between places in our journey when we do not know where we are going. It may be a sudden insight or a sharp turn or a gently opening door that comes in the midst of our personal journeys, confusions, and struggles. We are called to live open to mystery. This includes the great mystery, which is true of both humans and trees, that our roots get tangled up together in interdependence with one another. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. touched on this when he said, all I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated, that somehow we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, 
I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. You can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Weed and weeds grow up together, and sometimes we cannot tell which is what. And sometimes time reveals a growth we never would have imagined possible. But in fact, our job is also to imagine, to dream, and further God's dream of healing the world, God's dream of the reconciliation of enemies and the welcome of strangers to a joyful and abundant banquet, to bear the fruit of unshielded love. We are to live the blessing, to be the blessing of the hidden surprising presence of God and God's love for all people, common as dirt and precious to every creature of the earth. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Thanks be to God.